Chapter 5 of Yankee at Molokai by Eva K. Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 5 And Finds Even Harder Jobs. Brother Joseph now had a tiny house of his own, with a minute entry and one room on either side. Even before the little structure was completed, he erected a flagpole in front of it, on which, every morning, he ceremoniously raised his beloved stars and stripes. Every evening just before sunset the flag came down, and was tenderly stored for the night. Father Damien, in his early days at Molokai, had recognized the Hawaiian's love for stories, particularly true stories of the priest's homeland and his boyhood there. Now, when the lepers gathered in the evening under the big pandanus tree, it often was Brother Joseph who told the tales. Wide-eyed, his audience listened to stories of the United States, of Brother Joseph's forefathers who had left their homeland to meet and overcome obstacles as settlers in a new land. Joseph, or Ira as he was then, had been only four when his parents left Stowe, Vermont, to settle in Wisconsin, but he had heard and remembered the family tales and legends, and told them now to an enthralled audience. They could understand about tiny ships braving a stormy ocean. That was a situation quite familiar to these island dwellers. But unfriendly Indians were something else. And snow, such as the colonists had battled in New England, and in which Joseph had played during his boyhood in Wisconsin, snow baffled them, although they loved hearing about it. Tell us again about the snow which falls from the heavens, they would beg. Tell us about the boys' wars fought with balls made of the snow. When Joseph took all the boys who were well enough to the beach for a swim, they would scoop up hands full of the ocean spume and try to pelt each other with it. But it had no body and would not hold together. Joseph agreed that it looked something like snow. But it wasn't snow, and you couldn't make snowballs of it. The flag in front of Brother Joseph's house offered material for stories, too, and to help in raising and lowering it became a reward to be earned. Although Molokai was still part of the Kingdom of Hawaii, love for the Star-Spangled Banner and what it represented grew strong in many hearts in the settlement. Hawaiian boys grew familiar with the colonists, with the Battle of Bunker Hill, with the Green Mountain Boys. The struggle for independence in the Civil War became current news of immediate interest to them. Tell us about the first Thanksgiving. No, tell about the Indians teaching the pilgrims to plant corn. Thanksgiving, Indians, pilgrims, corn were all equally foreign to the boys. But stories about them were as exciting as pirate tales, and with the value fiction could never have, for they gave the lads real heroes to admire. A second leper colony on Molokai, Kalapapa, was now under Father Damien's care. There a home for girls was built, and nuns came in to care for them. Father Damien had discovered that the land at Kalapapa was just right for growing sweet potatoes, so they were started. The project furnished the girls with regular activity, and raised their morale by giving them a chance to contribute to the sometimes scanty larder. Another layman, James Sinnott, came to help at Kalawao, as well as a priest, Father Conradi. Father Conradi was as vigorous and colorful as the men he had come to join. A native of France, he had spent a little time in India after his ordination, and then gone to the United States, where he tramped through Oregon. Catholics were few and far apart in the area, and the Indians seemed more inclined to kill the white men than to listen to him. In fact, one of the Indian chiefs sent a group of his braves to tell the priest he was about to be slain. 
It is not quite clear what they hoped to accomplish by announcing their plans beforehand, but whatever they expected, it certainly was not what they got. "'You are going to kill me?' repeated the priest. "'Good, then you must let me give you this watch.' The braves blinked, drew back a little, muttered to each other. "'Perhaps you didn't understand,' said the spokesman, finally. "'We said we are going to kill you.' "'I understand perfectly. You are going to give me death.' so it is only polite that I should give you something valuable, too. The Indians left hastily and went to consult the wise men of the tribe. They, too, were somewhat frightened. This was indeed a strange man who offered a watch in exchange for death. He must have strong friends in the next world, since he was so anxious to join them. Perhaps it would be safer to leave him alone. So Father Conrad he was safe from the Indians of Oregon, though he still had mountains and rivers and heat and cold to combat. Poverty was always his companion, and often hunger as well. His equipment was of the crudest. Many times before saying Mass, he would scoop holes in potatoes to serve as candle-holders on his altar. The potatoes would be his meal of the day when Mass was over. This training in enduring hardship, in self-confidence, in ingenuity, were all assets of great value when he decided that God was calling him to Molokai. And men were needed there, for Father Damien's days were nearing their end. Father Wendelin Mullers, of Father Damien's own congregation, was assigned to take charge of the Kalapapa establishment. With two priests, the nuns, and us to help, I wish we could get Father Damien to take it a little easier, said Brother James Sennett, one day, as he and Joseph were busy with some carpentry. I used to try when I first came here, said Joseph, but all I accomplished was to make him angry, so I gave up. He seems to press on harder than ever. I agree, sighed Joseph. He still feels that there is so much to be done, and as far as he is concerned, the time in which to do it grows very short. In the fall of 1888, Father Damien was forced to take to his bed for a while. His hands were almost useless from the leprosy. His voice had the harsh rasp which comes from the disease. His nose was no longer of use for breathing, and his sight was almost gone. He recovered a little energy, and Brother Joseph tried in every way to make him feel that he was still the strength, as he would always be the heart, of life on Molokai. He conferred and consulted with Father Damien, and asked his advice on every move or change. In January he was forced to bed again. Joseph, whose privilege it had been to serve Father Damien's mass each morning, was disturbed when the priest did not appear. He went to his room to investigate, and then hurried to Father Conrady. Father, he has no bed. He sleeps on the floor, wrapped in a single thin blanket. He's lying there now, very sick. That won't do. You and Brother James get a bed and set it up. Shall I get sheets and pillowcases from the nuns? By all means. Brothers Joseph and James procured the bed and set it in position, put on the fresh sheets and blankets, and after heated argument got Father Damien's consent to lift him into it. In April, on Monday of Holy Week, the valiant old hero died. Under his direction, Brother Joseph had put all the financial accounts into shape, had disposed of the priest's few possessions, and it was Brother Joseph who rounded the earth over Father Damien's grave. Mail, which had always been a problem to Brother Joseph, now became heavier than ever. The death of the famous priest of Molokai brought letters from all parts of the world, and Joseph tried to answer all of them. 
Not many months later, a big new project was underway. When he first joined Father Damien, the boys' home had been a cluster of huts. Then two fair-sized buildings had been erected. Now, through the generosity of a resident of Honolulu, Mr. Baldwin, a real boys' home was to be built. The government of Hawaii consulted Brother Joseph. Would he supervise the construction? Yes, if I can have absolute control and no interference. There was a surprised silence. Governments don't usually operate that way. The Hawaiian representatives waited. Perhaps, they thought, after a little consideration, Brother Joseph would qualify his blunt demand. Brother Joseph waited also. He had stated his terms and had nothing to add. The silence continued. It will be as you wish, said the Hawaiians at last. Supervising the building work, dressing sores, nursing the sick, taking care of his boys, Joseph's long hours grew even longer. The training of a band in his boys' home was a project which delighted and satisfied him. Some of the boys were blind, some had but one hand, others had no legs. But quite matter-of-factly, Brother Joseph fitted the instrument to the boy and taught them to play the music that all islanders love. The islanders love beauty, too. So when Brother Joseph suggested plantings on the grounds of the rapidly growing Baldwin home, he met real enthusiasm. The first problem was to clear the ground of rocks, large and small, which were scattered thickly about. Breaking them up would solve no problem. Moving them was out of the question, for they were very large. So Brother Joseph decided that they should be buried. Dirt flew as everyone able to handle a shovel set to work. Trenches up to fifteen feet deep appeared as if by magic. After the rocks had been shoved and rolled into them, they were filled again with the rich earth in which bushes and trees quickly took root. It seemed no time at all before there was a great circle of croton trees with their flame-colored leaves growing around the home. And, soon after, two thousand graceful banana trees. A smaller variety of the brilliant croton was planted as decoration nearer the house. It was from these that Brother Joseph learned his first lesson in the speed of growth of plants in the tropics. The day had been one of lowering, threatening skies, and a stillness in the air that frightened the weather-wise. Although no wind disturbed Malachi, the ocean growled and muttered along the shoreline. A lava ledge runs out into the sea at Kalawao, rough and honeycombed with pits and caverns. The irritable waters hissed and foamed and threatened. It was evident that trouble was near. Suddenly the wind was on them, a scream, carrying ocean spray well inland, flattening all that it could, wrenching madly at what resisted. "'Get the hatchets!' yelled one of the men who assisted Brother Joseph. Everyone who was able grabbed a heavy knife or a hatchet and ran for the plantings. A knife was thrust into Brother Joseph's hand. "'Get the croton bushes down!' the man had to shout to make himself heard over the wind. "'Destroy them?' Brother Joseph was sickened by the loss of so much beauty. No, save them. The wind snatched some of the words, but Brother Joseph could make out the message. Too much wind resistance. Uproot it. Cut close to ground as we can. Save them. Brother Joseph ran out of the door and was met by a barrage of leaves and branches, which had already been cut or torn from the bushes. He bent almost double against the wind, and cringed as salt spray and wind-driven sand raked every exposed inch of skin. It felt like thousands of scalpels being used by clumsy hands. 
He squinted to protect his eyes and fought his way over to a group already cutting. Then the rain came. It came not in drops but in a cataract. It was as if the ocean and sky had changed places for a time, and now the sea in one great sheet was returning to the globe where it belonged. The men gasped for breath as if they were drowning. Joseph saw a bush, its roots loose in the wetted earth, torn up by the wind and hurled broken against a tree, its lovely leaves in tattered strings. He realized then the wisdom of the cutting. The banshee wail of the wind changed its key then. Almost as suddenly as it had begun, it stopped. Hacked, distorted stumps marked the circle where the croton had flamed, but the roots had been saved. In an incredibly short space of time, new growth came bursting forth. It seemed to be, if possible, even more beautiful than that which had been cut away. And so the leaves with the seasons came and went. Stories still held their charm, stories of Wisconsin, of the war, tales of fighting men and their horses, of the balloons used by both north and south. The idea of spying on the enemy from the air fascinated the boys. The Baldwin home was finished, and Brother Joseph was put in charge of it. In point of service, he was the senior in the leper colony. Moreover, he had worked closely for three years with Father Damien. He threw himself even more fully into the work. When he had served his country during the war, he had always worked to the limit of his strength and ingenuity. Now, serving suffering humanity, he worked in just the same way. The G.A.R. at their annual encampment were told of his efforts by friends of his army days. They voted to send him a new flag each year to use in front of his home. In the United States, in 1890, labor was growing restless. In Hyde Park, London, workers demonstrated demanding an eight-hour day. In Berlin, an international labor conference was called. In Spain, there were labor riots. But in Kalawao, Brother Joseph began his day at 4.30, and usually he worked until one or half-past one the following morning. In accord with his insistence from the very first, he received no salary. The Bishop Home for Girls at Kalapapa was growing, too. Mother Mary Ann and the other sisters who had arrived not long before Father Damien's death now needed more room. They relied on Brother Joseph for advice and help. There was more work, and always more, for him to do. In June 1895, Brother Joseph was going through the roll of Honolulu newspapers, which had come by the morning boat. They were several days old, but the news they carried was still new to the people of Kalawao. His eyes went casually down a page, when he was stopped by a startling bit of information. The Bishop of Honolulu, he read, had been able to secure from Europe a group of lay brothers who were to help with the work on Molokai. The news offered relief, but at the same time posed a problem. Their help was needed, to be sure, but coming from Europe it was not likely that they would speak either English or Hawaiian. And how could they be trained with any speed or ease over the language barrier? Brother Joseph mulled the matter over, trying to see a solution. The solution presented itself by mail very shortly. During his stay in Gethsemane, Brother Joseph had come to know and like a young man named Emil Van Lil. Mr. Van Lil, a Belgian by birth, had lived in the United States for some years, and, like Joseph, he had a burning love for the country. Like Joseph again, he had stayed a while with the Trappists, and then decided that the life was not the one he was called to. Van Lil had read of Dutton's work on Molokai. 
Now he wrote to say that he, too, would like to labor there. Joseph was delighted. Here, he felt sure, was the answer to the problem of training the new brothers who were coming. Joseph consulted the Hawaiian authorities. Might he accept the offer? You know the man? he was asked. Indeed, yes, I know him well and favorably. You feel he will fit into the life, aid in the work? I am sure of it. There is only one thing. Joseph hesitated and fumbled for words. He had never been refused anything he asked, but he had never made a request like this. I think it very likely he has no money to pay his fare out here. Where is he now? In Oregon. There was a brief pause. Tell him that we will be very glad to have him here and that passage money will be forwarded. So Emil Van Lille arrived at Kalawao. It was a happy reunion. He belonged to the Wisconsin Historical Society and received their publications. He got letters regularly from fellow veterans in the G.A.R. But to have first-hand, word-of-mouth news was wonderful, and he asked endless questions. The question-and-answer sessions, however, did not mean that work was skimped. He not only kept up his own amazing schedule, but he taught Emil Van Lil at the same time. Much must be crammed into a few weeks, so that when the brothers arrived, Emil, speaking both French and Wallen, would become a teacher in his turn. He had wondered, as had Brother Joseph before him, if there would be enough work to keep him busy. He, too, quickly found the answer. Shortly after Emil's arrival, it seemed as if every boy with hands and feet was busy constructing stilts and learning to walk on them. Then, as suddenly as it had started, the stilt epidemic was over, and to fly a kite was what each boy craved. But Emil did more than entertain, although building morale was important. Van Lil learned about and helped with the nursing and care of the patients. The first time he accompanied the priest on a visit to a dying boy, and the good father found it hard to anoint the lad, so much of his body was eaten away. Van Lilt found it hard to control his tears, but he learned self-discipline. Handsome, athletic, one-time daredevil Joseph Dutton was his model. From him Van Lilt learned. End of chapter 5